Welcome to PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Webcast Series, held on December 6, 2018, addressing the Section 163J proposed regulations. The panelists for this webcast include Rebecca Lee, a PwC tax principal, Matthew Chen, a PwC tax partner, and Susan Conklin, a PwC tax director, all part of our international tax services practice, as well as Karen Lonis, a PwC tax partner in our mergers and acquisitions practice. This excerpt consists of a general discussion among the panelists, providing a general overview of key definitions and the mechanics of the Section 163J proposed regulations and relevant rules for C corporations and consolidated groups. Have a listen. So in the proposed regs package, you know, There's a bunch of definitions, and we're going to spend a ton of time walking through some of the specifics. But the most fundamental distinction drawn in the package before we dive into any of the mechanics is dividing the world into business interest and investment interest. And business interest is interest paid or accrued on indebtedness properly allocable to a trade or business. And investment interest is everything else. It's interest allowable as a deduction that's paid or accrued on indebtedness properly allocable to property held for investment are intended to be mutually exclusive. I think the biggest change from my standpoint in the proposed reg package is the massive expansion of the definition of what's interest for purposes of the rules. Um, And it covers not just things that we have traditionally considered interest or an interest equivalent, uh, such as original issue discount, stated interest, bond premium, market discount, all things that to us financial products types look and feel like an interest equivalent. The regulations provide a series of rules that sweep in items that are normally deductible under Section 162, but they feel are sufficiently uh, close in nature to interest that they ought to be treated as an interest equivalent for these rules. And Uh, The ones that uh, I know some of my colleagues care a great deal about is the expansion to cover payments on um, uh, guaranteed payments on partnership interests. We sweep in commitment fees, which is analogous to the rules that are in 954-2H. And then there are special rules related to derivatives, what I would call hedging in, in my neck of the woods, where you've entered into transactions to adjust the cost of borrowing. Um, And there are two special rules that the regulations provided, each of which is specific to derivatives, as that term is defined under the BEAT rules. Um, Many of the pieces of those regs were drawn from an existing set of um, 861-9TB regulations, for for those of you who like to follow along in the code and regs. Uh, But the way in which they were picked up into the proposed 163J regulations, um, they made material changes. And I think that ends up being significant in terms of the way they're applied. Old 861-9TB had rules that generally applied to things like uh, hedges of interest rate risk. They had special rules for foreign currency. We don't have those kinds of rules. And most importantly, there's an anti-avoidance rule which characterizes certain expenses and losses as interest equivalent subject to limitation under 163J, uh, but doesn't go the other way and allow you to sweep what feels like an interest equivalent uh, on the income side and sweep it in and treat it as business interest. So I think we're constantly looking at as we continue to assess the impact of the regulations to figure out both 
How does this broader definition affect the types of expenses and interest flows that our clients have? Uh, does it cause them to revisit the structure of some of their arrangements? And then third, are there unintended consequences where there's potential for whipsaws, where an expense item is treated as an interest expense, but the commensurate income item wouldn't be treated as interest income? And for some businesses, that can create quite a whipsaw. Right. And Rebecca, just to add to your point, the anti-avoidance rule you mentioned, um, which is called an anti-avoidance rule, it sweeps in basically deductions and losses that are allocated in a portion in the same manner as interest under the 861 regulations, but there's no intent test. So if you have that type of expense, you're just subject to the limitation. And on on sort of the disparity you, you mentioned, just because an item might be subject to limitation under 163J, it doesn't mean it's treated as interest on the income side, for instance, for subpar F purposes. What, what would that be? Yeah, I mean, if we think about the regulatory burden on our clients, they're going to actually have to have multiple characterizations of the same item for general 163 deduction purposes, for 163J, for substantive tax accounting like subpart F or treatment on the U.S. return, and then for any other purpose. It's, it's going to be a, a heavy lift. So, Susan, turning it over to you for the basics, uh, what is adjusted taxable income? Because that's going to drive the whole balance of the calculation. And that's right, Rebecca. And adjusted taxable income, at least uh, for the first few years through uh, for tax years beginning before January 1st, 2022, is going to be roughly equivalent to EBITDA, which is essentially fairly similar to what we had under old 163J. Um, but for tax years beginning on or after uh, January 1st of 2022, it's going to be EBIT. And so I think taxpayers are going to be in a little bit of shock in that year when they don't get to add back depreciation and amortization. Um, in addition, they provide some rules on, on how these rules interact with the Section 250 deduction and your guilty and FDII rules and how, how you... Um, calculate that without regard to the taxable income limitation, and uh, you determine those deductions without regard to Section 163J, because otherwise you would have ended up with this circular calculation that no one knew quite where it ended. So um, so in those calculations, um, they give us some more specifics on what we have as additions to taxable income. The obvious thing, and basically the way they say it, they don't actually call them additions or subtractions. They just say you calculate adjusted taxable income by starting with taxable income and compute it without regard to, for example, NOLs, 199A deduction, um, depreciation, amortization, depletion, and capital loss carry forwards. Importantly, uh, that item does not include uh, depreciation, amortization, and uh, depletion that's included in cost of goods sold um, and capitalized to inventory under 263 Cap A. And you also um, don't uh, you also add back any deductions or losses that are properly that are not properly allocable to a non-accepted trader business, um, because obviously this only applies to uh, business interest expense, and they have carved out certain businesses and certain elective carve outs of businesses as well. Um, and so, and then you subtract from taxable income your floor plan financing expense because you get to deduct that in full. 
And then you also subtract the smaller of your gain recognized on disposition of property or depreciation, amortization, or depletion during this uh, five-year period. Um, and the same thing on the investment adjustments and, and uh, partnership dispositions. It's really the depreciation or gain components mm -hmm. on property dis dispositions as well. Um, and then they, you also subtract out any income or gain of accepted or that's properly alloc allocable to a non-accepted trade or business on there. And then the general mechanics, um, and importantly, uh, this was something, it was answered in Notice 2018-28 for people who were subject to Section 163J previously, that now they, they can carry forward those disqualified, that disqualified interest, and they clarified it will be treated as business interest expense in the taxpayer's succeeding taxable year and essentially will be deductible to the extent it's not allocable to an accepted trader business. Um, there is a small business exception that applies to taxpayers with average annual gross receipts of $25 million or less and the average over the last three years. Um, now, importantly on that one, you can fall in and out of that. And the broad anti-avoidance rule that they've provided, and they, they use the small business exemption exception um, to as an, ex as an example of the application of this anti-abuse rule. But it basically um, disregards any arrangement that's entered into with the principal purpose of avoiding Section 163J or the proposed regulations. And um, now, interestingly, um, for this one, you know, it's it, it it's not just for the small business exception. It's really anything under the sun that um, could potentially avoid these rules. So, and they're so complicated, it's hard to <laughs> hard to address uh, or hard to figure out just exactly when someone is actually disregarding or mistakenly applying the rules. So um, on the next slide here, we've got a basic example, which I'm not going to walk through, that, that goes through a very simple example of how the interest deduction is calculated. Okay, and so, which I'll let people go through um, on their own here. Um, on Next slide here. Um, importantly, they did uh, give us some rules on how the 163J rules interact with other rules. And basically, the general rule is that 163J applies to interests that would otherwise be deductible under the code. In other words, other provisions that operate to disallow, defer, capitalize, or otherwise limit a deduction typically apply first. The only exceptions are for at-risk rules and um, passive activity loss rules. Now, they did reserve on the of the the rules between 163J and the BEAT proposed and the BEAT rules. We expect the BEAT proposed regulations any day now. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it'll be interesting in particular to see how people with carry forwards from old 163J will be affected by BEAT, whether those will be um, subject to BEAT at all, 
um, how they will allocate between interest that was paid to related parties and interest that was not paid to related parties, but which was limited. So it'll be interesting to see how they address that and how they allocate those. Karen, given the broad definition that we have, how are your clients reacting, I mean, particularly in the partnership space? Well, I mean, that one in the partnership space is fairly straightforward. Um, guaranteed payments for the use of capital are payments made to partners for the use of their capital, and, and both by statute and reg um, are equity payments. So we're a little gasp about the, the extension um, and, and didn't really honestly expect it in, in the sense that there was a 90 notice that had come out under the old 163J that um, a use of a guaranteed payment was addressed, and, and that was not put forth as, as one of the legal arguments. And there were many thrown in to the legal arguments that the uh, guaranteed payment for the use of capital would be interest. So um, I, it definitely expands um, the scope. Uh, fortunately, guaranteed payments for services are not included in this expanded definition, and I would say by far they're more prevalent than guaranteed payments for the use of capital. So practically, uh, fairly limited, but I would say some of our most sophisticated uh, partnerships use the guaranteed payments for use of capital. So a lot, a lot to be considered there. Yeah, it's okay, Karen, because the regs also, and they call this out in the preamble, they overruled an old Supreme Court case, Deputy V. DuPont, and what is the use or forbearance of money being interest. So um, overruling a 90 notice, maybe we don't feel that, so that's bad yeah, about. A contemporary, that's true. Um, so, Susan, I'm going to turn it over to you briefly to just touch on the changes that were made around C corporations and some of the more favorable guidance in the consolidated group context. Right. And some of that more favorable guidance is they did clarify, and consistent with the statutory provision that all income um, gain or loss that's allocable to a, a C corporation is treated as a business is treated as business mm -hmm. um, in business items um, and they're not investment items and the only exception is if they're allocable to an accepted trader business that is not subject to 163j now uh, they also clarified and which I think was as expected that any disallowed interest does not affect your your uh, E&P calculation. Basically, um, it is deductible when paid without regard to 163J, um, when paid or accrued as otherwise deductible. And then um, they've also confirmed that they will permit a consolidated group calculation on the Section 163J mm -hmm. limitation, which is slightly different from old 163J, where in the statute you had to be, you had to meet the consolidated group definition, but not necessarily file mm -hmm. a consolidated return, or the old proposed regs had this expanded affiliated group concept that, that is no longer there, basically. Um, and these rules essentially treat a consolidated group as if it were one corporation, and they disregard all intercompany um, items in doing the calculation. And they've also provided some rules about carry forwards. You're always treated as using current year interest, um, business interest expense first, and your carry forwards are basically 
deducted on a FIFO basis. And they also made clear, which was not clear under the old regs, or it, the old proposed regs did say surly limitations applied, but there was no statutory provision, and so many taxpayers didn't actually pro apply those rules under the old 163J regs. And then um, in the last uh, slide here, we have um, just some general rules on how you allocate things to accepted trades, trades or businesses. They provide a look-through rules for dividends to figure out whether it's coming from an accepted trade or business or not. Um, and you look at the group, a consolidated group as a whole, to determine whether it's engaged in accepted trades or businesses or non-accepted trades or businesses. And they provide a series of specific rules for allocating interest expense essentially based on the adjusted basis of assets. Now, they couldn't use fair market value because tax reform repealed the fair market value allocation mm -hmm. rules. Um, so they, they had to settle for adjusted basis. And then they provided other allocation methods for other types of expenses, and especially items um, used in more than one trade or business here. And certain direct allocations, but in very specific circumstances. So, yeah, and that one's come up for me a lot of a few different times where you end up with um, a, a business that is an accepted trader business, mm -hmm. but they also have other operations. Yeah. And you sort of have to navigate this very practical question of, you know, let's assume everyone wants to follow the proposed regu regulations. Um, while we do have guidance, I don't think it's abundantly clear how you go about doing the calculations. And, and it's been a little bit of a challenge, but we're still in early days. Yeah. Susan, you know, we've, we've touched on so far, I'd say, what what are general rules that apply to everyone. You practice mostly in an inbound context. For your client base who are investing inbound in the U.S., what is the biggest pain point or the biggest source of concern? Well, the biggest source of concern, I think, started with the new statutory provision <laughs> re reducing uh, the deductible amount from 50 percent to 30 percent. But I think um, it there, it's the notice we got before was very helpful in clarifying that to the extent that people had um, disqualified interest from prior years, that they could actually carry it forward into the new regime. Um, they would have liked to also carry forward their excess limitation amounts, but that was a non-starter because the new provisions have no excess limitation concept. Um, so it, it wasn't unexpected that they wouldn't be able to do that. And I think the biggest uncertainty still is how it will all feed into b the BEAT rules. So, Yeah, and I, I can say certainly from uh, my clients who are inbound, one of the biggest sort of, I'd say, practical challenges that they're facing is because we're going from a world of related party interest rules to a set of interest limitations that apply to everyone, um, companies are taking a really hard look at their interest uh, deductions in the U.S., and they're thinking about their capital market structure. You know, where does it make sense to leverage, especially when you're not necessarily compelled to leverage through the U.S.? Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like more information about this topic, please email the speakers. You can find their contact information in the description of this episode. Thank you.